0: So the word serendipity was coined by English writer Horace Walpole in 1754. Horace was writing a letter to a friend, and in the letter he referenced a Persian parable called the Three Princes of Serendip. Serendip is the ancient word for Sri Lanka. And so Horace Wopal mentions the three princes of Serendip who had got themselves into a difficult situation and were accused of theft. But because of a number of situations that happened, some chance discoveries, they were able to escape the false charge of theft and not suffer the brutal consequences. And so the word serendipity became a descriptor for chance discoveries, or chance accidents that open up new horizons or open up new ideas. In fact, I think you'll know some of these examples of serendipity. One of them, for example, is this gentleman, Columbus, who, setting sail for India, serendipitously found another land and came to the Americas, another is Fleming, whose tear, happening to fall in a petri dish as he was conducting an experiment, was able to find penicillin, serendipity. And the third is this gentleman, who I'm sure many of you may be familiar with, John Harvey Kellogg, who in boiling some wheat, let it stay on too long and then gave us the now world-famed cornflakes, and there are many other examples of serendipity happening, whether it's post-it notes, Velcro, or even uh, French fries. Serendipity happens everywhere, and new and chance discoveries come as a consequence. Serendipity uh, can also be described in this way. Serendipity can be described as being the diagonal which happens when we veer off course from going on a straight line. So we're going in a straight line, then a serendipitous moment happens, which takes us in a different direction on a diagonal. It's at the point where a trajectory turns and takes on an entirely different course, upsetting all our plans, all of our ideas, and all of our projects. And this is what happened to all of us six months ago. We had an event a viral event, which upset all of our projects, all of our plans, all of our schedules, all of our holidays, all of our work plans, all of our shopping. It disrupted every single aspect of our life. And there's nothing nice about this particular diagonal. And as we head into a new school year here at the Walla Walla University Church, we are of course a church that is deeply committed to education both uh, within our institutions and without. But as we head into a new school year, as we head into a new season of life, It is important for us to recognize that there is much uncertainty and acute feelings of uncertainty because of this diagonal change which has come upon all of us. Faculty, staff, administration here at the Walla Walla University, teachers and support staff at Rogers, at at Wahai, at Davis, at College Place, at Lincoln, and many other schools besides hold in tension, fear and anticipation. And then there are parents of course, parents dropping off their kids to begin as freshmen here at Walla Walla University. Parents who are having to do temperature checks each morning before kids go to school, who now have to add face coverings to the wash routine of the week. There are parents who have to check internet connections for online classes and all of us holding our breath, wondering if there's going to be a new turn, a new proclamation, a new ordinance that changes the way that we live. Friends, we are living in a historical moment. Books are being written about 2020. Your kids, your grandkids will ask you, what was it like to live in 2020? We are living at a historical juncture in history, and it is important to name this reality, that for many of us, simmering below the surface are a complex uh, cocktail of emotions that can actually spill over because of this moment. Sometimes in our conversations with our trusted friends, sometimes in our conversations in private with our family, we share our concern that the institutions that we are connected with, that the powerful who are over us are perhaps not doing enough. Or well, for some people, they are doing too much. For others, these people in these institutions are too sure of themselves. For others, they're too unsure of what they are doing. And so how then do we live as a community of Jesus followers during these justifiably uncertain times. Now, if we want to turn uh, to the inflamed rancor and the boiling broadsides of the world, if we want to look at the media, if you want to look at the conversation which is happening in outlets across this land, we will be given a framework and a paradigm through which we can live in this next season. And I'm going to go through some of these with you. I'm sure they will sound familiar. What we can do is we can take aim and we can unload every single cartridge until it's spent, We can blame and we can shame because no one knows really what is going on. We can take cues from our favorite talking heads and pundits, and we can decide perhaps as parents, the answer is simple. The only way we can make it through these justifiably difficult times is to blame the institutions that our children are part of, or that our children are uh, under the care of. Institutions, how do we deal with this justifiably uncertain times? Perhaps we can uh, throw mud at parents who don't understand the complexity of the policies and of the different um, preventions that we have to put in place, and the complex rubrics that inform what we do. Faculty, How do we deal with this justifiably uncertain time? Perhaps we ought to always be ready to impale administration when they do anything that we disagree with. And students, how do we deal with justifiably uncertain times if we look to the way of the world? Well, it's easy. Don't let one day go by without having a snarky, sharp riposte at anything that happens that you don't like but any change which happens that makes you feel put out. And I am convinced that if we choose to follow this map in this next season of our life, if we take our cues from the world, from talking heads, from news media, if we allow ourselves to be swept up with reproach, I will be a prophet and tell you that all of us will be stressed, angry, burnt out, and disappointed. But this morning, or this afternoon, I submit that there is actually a better way. There is a way which an ancient follower by the name of Paul, who followed Jesus Christ, showed us in one of his letters. Writing to the church in Romans, he told them, the following in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse nine. This is what Paul says. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And then verse 10, he continues. uh, Oh, let's go back one, one verse. There we go. You know what? We read verse 10. Verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, verse 10 in particular is where we're going to spend our time this afternoon when Paul says, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Some translations of this Greek text have rendered it as outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. The New Living Bible writes it this way, delight in honoring one another. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I read the Bible, the Bible reads me back, the Bible challenges me, and then I have a dialogue with the Bible. And as the Spirit convicts me and I start to feel a little uncomfortable, I start to ask questions like this. This is a superhuman request. How in the world am I supposed to, as a follower of Jesus Christ, live up to this? After all, honor is a strange word. How often do we speak about honor in our day-to-day lives? We don't speak about honor. What is this? 18th century America. We don't go to fields of honor to duel. This isn't Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. We don't talk about honor. It's been put aside as an old word in the same category as duty. Really a word that us postmodern people run from. And so what does honor mean for a Christian during justifiably uncertain times? What does honor mean for you and for me living during this time? I'll also admit that during a time of cultural uncertainty, political acrimony, and societal instability, that the notion of honoring anyone might set your teeth on edge. The last thing you want to do is honor. And yet, Paul admonishes us and says, we must honor. And to honor is not something which is dependent on external circumstances, but in fact, honor, if you follow Paul's thinking, is the lodestar which follows the trajectory of love. Because once you love and you have other-centered love for people, honor is an outflow of love. And so Paul says, we must honor one another. And although it's difficult, this is what we're going to explore today. But before we do that, three reasons. Three reasons why I think it's difficult to honor. Reason number one, I think it's difficult to honor because we believe and behave as though honor is a limited commodity. In the same way that we, we, we might uh, look at Black Friday doorbuster deal at Walmart, and we might line up from 2 a.m. the night before so we can get one of the 50-inch flat-screen TVs, and people are ready to trample over other people to get that deal. Some of us live as if honor is a limited commodity, that if I honor you, perhaps there is not enough honor left in the room, in the office, in the ward, in our family for me to get some back. So we withhold it, and we're tight-fisted with honoring other people. The second reason I think it may be difficult to honor is that we default to criticism instead of celebration. We often default to criticism instead of celebration. What do I mean by that? If we have been living our life and have become shaped in such a way that our normal response in relationships, in our work, is to offer criticism, Rather than celebration, it becomes difficult, nay, impossible to honor other people. If our eyes are so sharp to see where people make mistakes, but our mouths are too slow to celebrate their success, then honoring people becomes impossible. And the third reason why I think it's difficult to honor other people is that we often try to hide our flaws by pointing out other people's failings. We fear exposure. And so we point the finger at someone else to get the attention of us so that no one needs to look at the fissures of our own feet of clay. So it's much easier to point where other people have done wrong than to take responsibility and also to honor others. And yet with all of this, I think Paul would still have us um, recognize this admonition is true even in 2020. In fact, Paul's writings, honor is rooted in love and his constant refrain in his letters and his epistles is to exclaim this incontrovertible truth that the Father loves us and we are loved. And so this becomes the foundation out of which we can live our lives and we can honor other people. We are secure because we know the Father loves us. In fact, one of the things which um, I want to mention is a few weeks ago when we preached from Luke chapter 15, we spoke about the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes out, lives a lavish life, comes back, And he has taken with him a third of the father's wealth. And then the older son has two thirds of the father's wealth. So in theory, the father has given out all of his money. He has emptied his 401k. He has nothing left in checking. He probably should only have enough food to eat if he is giving away all of his wealth and inheritance. But when the uh, boy comes back after Luke 15, 15, he comes to his senses, comes home. What are we told? The father has enough to throw a party. The father still holds onto his ring, onto his power. He still has enough to give, even though in theory he has given everything out. And this is a part of the story which departs from reality. And it's because our heavenly father, like the father in the prodigal son, does not live according to the strictures of scarcity but rather he lives in generosity and in abundance. When he gives, it does not mean that what he has left is diminished. When he honors, the honor is not diminished. And in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, it's important to know that whether it's love or honor, when we recognize that we are adopted as children of God, that we sit on the right hand of the throne of God, when we recognize that we have been given all things and all riches in Jesus Christ, it means we can live with a sense of abundance and generosity in how we treat and celebrate one another because we recognize that the father that loves us, that loves our neighbor, that loves our colleague has more than enough for all of us. And so Paul in other places argues That it's only when we are secure in the Father's love that we are able to honor others. That we can invite others to find their places at the table without feeling like we are risking our own. We can celebrate others' God-appointed destinies because we recognize their success doesn't threaten ours. When we are secure in the Father's love, I believe that there is no need to hide our cracks because we recognize that we are all beggars in need of bread, that we are all broken, being mended by the healing love of God. And so what does it look like in September 2020 in the Walla Walla Valley or wherever you may be watching this broadcast from, from your corner of the United States, from your part of the world, what does it look like in this season to honor one another, in the way Paul admonishes us. I believe it means that we ought to be gentle in our critique, but we ought to be fierce in our encouragement. To honor one another means that we should believe the best of each other. To honor one another, my friend on your, on your sofa this morning, means that when you draft an email and you're about to hit send, you read through that email, and if you recognize it has a sharp tone, you make an adjustment. It means that if you're about to send that communication and it's loaded with passive-aggressive overtones, you change the email. It means you speak truth, but you do so kindly and you honor the recipient of your communication. To honor one another means that we can disagree with processes, but we can still honor the people who are part of those decisions. It means we could have even been left out of the decision-making loop at work or at home or in the community that we are part of, It means we could have been poorly communicated with by a friend who just got too busy, who missed an appointment, by a child who has been overwrought. But we honor them regardless of their missteps. And how do we honor them? We honor them, I believe, by not gossiping or making disparaging remarks about those who have brought us despair because it's other-centered love. Remember, we honor people by thinking the best and not assuming the worst. We honor people by looking for the potential in other people. To honor means we listen, really listen, not so that we can speak to win, but so we can listen to understand. We listen carefully to one another. To honor one another means we create a culture of grace, not shame. We desire to help other people to succeed. We encourage, we challenge, we hold accountable. We love, we celebrate, we thank, we forgive. We delight in letting each other shine. And above all, we keep Christ central. That's what it means to honor each other during a time of reproach. This is what it looks like to live subversively and countercultural to the ways in which we see people vying for power and people pushing to get to the front. And so my prayer for all of us, wherever you are watching today, whatever situation you may find yourself in, is to choose to honor each other in the coming week, to build each other up instead of tearing Each other down. To celebrate success instead of highlighting failure. To mourn over sin instead of rejoicing at someone else's fall. To offer people a hand when they have fallen down so they can get back on their feet. To love as God has loved us. When I think about honor, I think about us helping one another forward into the image of Christ. An anthropologist writing a few years ago, Margaret Mead, was asked by a student what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. So the student is expecting Margaret to say, well, you know, the first sign of civilization in a culture, perhaps is going to be uh, clay jars. Maybe she, she might have said, it's fish hooks. Maybe she'd have said the ability to work with metal. This is what the student was expecting, but Mead instead doesn't talk about fish hooks or clay jars or grinding stones. She said the first sign of civilization in an ancient culture was when a femur, a thigh bone, had been broken and then healed, which seems like a strange response. What has that got to do with sowing that a civilization is coming out of a culture when a femur bone is broken? And then she explains, Mead says that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You cannot run from danger. You cannot go to the river to drink. You cannot hunt for food. You are meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. And then she continues. A broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell, has bound up the wound, has carried the person to safety, and has tended the person through recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts, Mead says. And friends, all of us are living in a broken time. All of us have broken femurs in some shape or form. All of us have dealt with loss. All of us have dealt with change. Many of us have spent time in hospitals. Many of us have been to gravesides. Many of us are part of institutions trying to figure their way through the fog of uncertainty into the future. We're part of worshiping communities trying to chart the best course forward. And if in this stage where many of us find ourselves broken and institutions find themselves hobbling, And families find themselves unable to know where the next paycheck is going to come from. I believe Paul's words must be a clarion call for us, that we are to love one another and we are to honor one another. Not to show that we are civilized, but to show that the grace of God has come deep inside of our bones and has changed us so that we might be a community of honor in a society of reproach. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you are joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.